Well, well, happy Father's Day weekend to everyone here. Uh, it's, it's fun to be here, not just because it's Father's Day and I get to say uh, congratulations and thanks to all the dads, but because being a dad, I have a little bit of an insight into what it's like to try to plan for the life of a little kid and to be there for them. And, you know, we, we have a hard job sometimes, dads. Uh, I have a little uh, six-week-old son, Gabriel, and man, it is really hard. Every time he wakes up in the middle of the night and my wife has to get out of the bed and wake me up, you know? She wiggles the bed and I'm just like, come on, honey, can you please do that a little more quiet so that I can get some rest? It's really difficult to be a dad. I've got to put up with that stuff all the time. And, and when, when she's trying to help take care of the kids and put food on the table for them, you know, pour the milk just right for the little one and take care of the other one, man, she sometimes gets in my way and I'm trying to eat. And it's okay because I'm a dad and I'm, I'm dealing with the struggles and hardships that it takes to be a dad. But one thing that I've noticed, in all honesty, that's interesting about being a dad is the planning that it takes to take care of kids. It, it takes a lot of planning to put together what a family is going to do on a given weekend, for example. And uh, I don't know about you, but there are a couple different types of people. There's those who are really good at planning and those who don't really plan so much. And I've learned about my wife that she and I, were not very similar in that regard. And let me do a quick survey here as we move into today's teaching on distractions to see what kind of distractions might get in your way. Let's find out uh, what kind of person you are in regards to your planning. So quick show of hands, either this campus or 95th, put your hands in the air if you consider yourself a planner. You're a planner, hands up. Okay, decent number of planners. Your hands back down. Okay, now how about those of you who, I don't want to say aren't planners because it sounds like lazy or something. So how about those of you who are spontaneous? That's, that's way more spicy. Spontaneous people, hands in the air. Okay, and how about those who would say, I'm not really necessarily just spontaneous or just planning, but there are certain areas of my life where I plan like really crazy. Anybody who, just, who, who is spontaneous in general, but they can really hone in on one specific thing. Some of you people are like kind of in the middle. Of that. Ah, there's a few things. All right. For those of you who raised your hand for, I'm a planner, um, it doesn't mean that you're not spontaneous because I'm sure that you already have it somewhere scheduled out there like the second Thursday of every month between 2.12 and 2.53. You are spontaneous, like really spontaneous in that time. And it's crazy for that 31 minutes. But for those who have different thinking about it, I'll, I'll tell you what, no matter how you deal with it, you have to look at the plans of your life and ask yourself the question, is this what I'm supposed to do with my time? Now, one thing that I want to pass on to my children in regards to planning is I want to teach them how to plan outdoor adventures, outdoor trips. Now, my wife and I share a common love and joy for uh, outdoor camping, hiking, uh, backcountry, wilderness type of stuff, okay? And so who here likes camping? Camping, good number of people like camping. All right, my guess is in a, in, a, in a group, when you ask people like that, there's a percentage, a rather large percentage, when they say camping, they're thinking about that place where you drive the car up, and you park it, and you get out, and you set up your tent right there, right? Yeah, that's not really camping. Come on. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I am a camping snob, and I have, I have made my wife a camping snob, that if you can see the car, it's not camping for us. We like to be way out in the middle of the wilderness, in the wild. That's where we want to be for camping, and even since our honeymoon, that's always been our vacations, our trips. We've gotten our backpacks on, hiked in the middle of nowhere, and just gotten away. And I remember our favorite trip that we ever had was to Glacier National Park. 
Anybody ever been to Glacier National Park? It's an incredible trip. It's in the northwestern corner of Montana, right on the border with Canada, and beautiful glacial lakes, like, like just incredible blue-green colors to the water. Um, there's just, the mountains are exceptional out there. The sunsets are ridiculous. And, and to put, up, put it all into perspective, you really get to be close to the wild. The wilderness comes right up to you. Multiple times we'd be out there and be an arm's length away from a, a family of, of mountain goats just trying to get past the little crag we're walking along. It's so cool. And perhaps the most fun part about it for me was that I got to plan for the months coming up to that trip. And I'm like pining over all the maps and figuring out Google Earth and which would be the best place to go and the checkpoints we'd have to reach. And that's just the way that I tend to get into it. I really plan big when it comes to the outdoor adventures because I want it to be a great trip and to be out there. Well, Laura and I got out to Glacier National Park and we, we, we hit, the, hit the trailhead and went right on in. We had planned about 35 miles. We were going to cover in about four days outside, just constant, just getting away from everything, away from everything. And we were about three days into this incredible trip. And uh, we, we, we met another group of hikers that had come from the other direction. We were kind of crossing paths. We asked them about that last little site, the last campsite. I said, hey, so what's that one like? Because we're going there tomorrow. And they said, oh... It's, it's not good. We had hiked six miles up this steep hill just to get towards the very top where they didn't re- uncover the trail. So you can't find where you're going. And all the weeds kind of, kind of accumulated and got over the top, made it hard to get through. And in addition to that, the bugs were absolutely heinous. Like you, you're not, we didn't even stay. You're, you're not going to want to stay there. And Laura and I were like, man, that kind of really stinks. We were looking forward to having one extra day out in the woods. This, was, this has been our trip plan for a long time. But after hearing that, we're like, well, that's, not, that's no fun, you know, contending with the bugs all night and not even finding the trail. So let's just, let's just change the plans. Let's just go back down to the road and figure out another, another site. So that's the next day, that's exactly what we did. We passed up the site and continued on down to the next road. And when we finally got to the, the cars again, we could see what it looked like. Uh, we realized we've got to find a place to stay because it's starting to rain. The sun is starting to get lower on the horizon. We, we've got to find a place. And the only place available was in one of those terrible car park next to you, RV park style campgrounds with like, you know, the little shower stall in the corners, all of that. And so we were like, you've got to be kidding. And in addition, it was really crowded. We couldn't even find a spot to put our tent. And I was thinking, Lord, every time we come out to do a trip, we always pray that you would be in all the details and you'd help work it out so that we could just enjoy going on these trips and enjoying the days out in your creation, getting closer to you. We always ask God to bless those times. And here we found ourselves at this crowded campground. We couldn't even find our own spot. We had to find one that was next to an existing tent. A guy was already packed there. And we saw it, and we was like, you know, that's the only hole in the entire campground. And so I just said, hey, hey, bud, would you mind if we just set our tent next to yours? I mean, it's for one night we had a situation. And he's like, yeah, that's fine, no problem. Now, if you've ever had to be that close to somebody in a tent, it's like sharing a hotel room with a stranger, smelly stranger. You're so close to the person, and there's just two little pieces of fabric, your tent and his, between the two, and the sounds are crazy, and I was just not looking forward to this night at all. We finally said, forget it, we'll just, we'll just go with it. Our plans blew up, so I guess that's how it's going to happen. We, started, we sat down, we kind of sat down on a picnic bench, which obviously makes it not a campground, and as we were reading the Bible together, we were just kind of talking about the scripture passages that we were going through. He was sitting there, our new roommate was in his picnic bench around near the fire edge, just smoking a cigarette, and when we finished reading and talking about the Bible— I kind of grabbed some stuff and put it in the tent. And he turns to my wife. He said, hey, what were, you, what were you guys reading? My wife says, oh, we were reading the Bible. And he said, hmm, well, could I talk to you guys about that for a little bit? Now, if you know my wife, 
She's like this crazy evangelist. She loves those moments. And so she about like just blew up with excitement and, and got so excited. She was like a seagull with a french fry, came running around the corner of the, of the tent there, burst inside, and like he's not even close. She goes, hey, this guy, he just said that we can talk to him about the Bible. He wants to hear all about it. And I'm like, shh, I heard he's four feet on the other side of the tent. It's okay. And so we got out and we, we just, it was, you know, it's raining. We put our ponchos on. We sat there and uh, found out this guy, um, this guy had moved from the East Coast. His name was, Tra- name, name was Trevor. He moved from the East Coast to the West Coast because he was trying to get away from all the spiritual baggage he had had in different churches when he was there. He was now a self-proclaimed Zen Buddhist, but he was out in Glacier National Park trying to find himself. And he heard us talking about the Bible and says, well, let's, let's check this one out. And for the next four hours, we sat there in the rain and the dark around this campfire talking to this guy about Jesus, sharing the gospel to him in a whole new way, praying for the guy. And I'm not sure if we planted a seed or watered an existing seed that was already there, but it was by far the highlight of our trip. Now, here's the deal. It wasn't my plan. It wasn't even close to my plan to be in that place at that time to have that interaction. But God had a plan that was unique, separate, different than my plan, and his plan trumped mine. You know, the Bible's full of places where somebody has a plan, something they want to go do, and God comes in and goes, no, actually, that's really not my plan. That's just yours. And so a question that I begin to ask you this weekend is this. Is your plan also God's plan? Is your plan God's plan? Let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to Matthew chapter 14. And uh, we're going to go to a, a pretty common, common story and look at it in a little different way to, tonight. So 14, chapter 14, if you're uh, holding one of these red Bibles, it's page 742. And I'm going to set this up real quick for you. Jesus just found out that a dear friend and even second cousin, a relative of his, John the Baptist had been beheaded by the local government. Because he had said some things about that local government, about their abdication of responsibility, of the the fact that they wanted to live unrighteously and and live in a wrong way. And he called them out on it and ultimately was put to death for it. And Jesus just receives this sad news about his dear friend, who he once said is the greatest man born of woman. And this this is what happens, and I'll pick it up in verse 13, if you want to follow along. As soon as Jesus heard the news... He went off by himself in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed by land from many villages. A vast crowd was there as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That evening the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, let me pause here for a second and just kind of recap. So Jesus wanted to be alone, right? Here's some pretty, pretty terrible news, and he just wanted to, to be alone. And so he goes out and tries to get away, and he's met by a crowd of people who follow him out to the middle of the wilderness because they wanted connection with him. And he didn't turn them away, but instead he met their needs. He showed up, he began healing the people because he had compassion on them. What a wonderful, wonderful God. But as this is all going down, the disciples, who I always picture are like crowd control in these moments, you know, they're not, I can't imagine doing much right now when Jesus is there. I know that he had sent them out and he allowed them to do miracles and things, but right then and there, I don't think the people are coming to see him, see them, I think they're coming to see Jesus. And so they're kind of just crawling up, hey, you can come to me and then see Jesus. And one of them figures it out, or maybe all of them, hey, this is, it's getting a little late around here. Sun's going down. And uh, we're a far away from, from anything 
Definitely, there's, there, there's no Chick-fil-A around here. We're, we're, we're far away, and nobody's going to have any food. Pretty soon, this has become a riot. And so they approach Jesus, and they go, okay, Jesus, hey, this is the deal. And what I found interesting about this passage, what I hadn't really seen before, is that they had a plan. You see, these disciples already had looked at the scene. They had surveyed what was going on. They had ascertained that there wasn't enough food. They saw the number of people. And they, they put a plan into place, and they brought their plan before Jesus. And I'll repeat that plan again. The disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and it's getting late. And here's, here's what they said. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. So, hey, Jesus, we got, we got an idea. We saw what's going on. Don't worry. You just keep healing these last few people. We're, we got this whole plan. We're going to send the people. So you just command, and we'll, we'll, we'll get it going. We'll start passing the word and get them going home. We got this one. And what does Jesus say to them? He says in verse 16, But Jesus replied, That isn't necessary. You feed them. Impossible, they exclaimed. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. See, they did their homework. They had an idea of what was going on there. Bring them here, he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and asked God's blessing on the food. Breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave some of the bread and fish to each disciple. And the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men had eaten from those five loaves in addition to all the women and children. So we have what was potentially 15,000 people all together seeing Jesus, watching him do this miracle. The disciples had a plan, and Jesus had a better plan. Now, I feel compelled to say, I think that the primary focus of this passage is on Jesus and his miracle— not on the disciples and their plan. However, I can't help but find it interesting that they came up with one that was different from what God had in mind, and God's plan was so much better. Here's why I'm bringing this up to you this weekend. Last weekend, we covered the things that are distractions in our lives, the things that steal our focus. Those things are the things that we have or the things we want to have. This weekend, we're talking about not the things that we have, but the things that we do or that we want to do, our activity, the way that we deal with a multitude of responsibilities, a multitude of tasks. You see, the disciples had seen so much going on. They saw there was a lot to get done. There was a lot to be finished. And in figuring that out, they came up with a plan that was not the right one. And I think that you and I do very much the same thing as those disciples do, and we do it all the time. Now, there are a few very common ways that we tend to, I think, do wrongly with the activity that we commit to. And I think those three, three ways are this. I think we, we, we have distraction through busyness, through routine, and ambition. So let's, let's talk about those for a minute. Busyness. We'll begin with the first one. I think that when it comes to the way you deal with a lot of tasks, there's a couple different types of people. There's those who have a big plate and those who have a little plate. You ever heard this before? The big plate are those people who seem they can always fit more on that plate. It's like no matter how packed their schedule is, no matter what their calendar says, they can always fit a little bit more on there. I am totally a big plate person. I'm the kind of guy who will just finish saying to somebody, I don't know how I'm going to get all my work done in these next three days, and there's so much to do. I don't know what to do. The phone rings. I pick it up, and my buddy says, hey, do you want to hang out today? Yeah, sure, come over. That's my response. It's the way I tend to go. I'm the type of guy, a big plate person, who when you get a phone call at 10 o'clock at night and someone says, what are you doing? I was about to get in bed. No, we're going to see a movie. You want to go? Okay. All I was going to do was sleep. 
That's a great way to fit something else into the day. Put the phone down, you go out and you have some fun. The reason is big plate people say, we can always fit more. There's always room for more. Just pile it on, pile it on. Always fit it. Now inverse, the little plate people. The little plate people can tend to feel or at least express an overwhelming kind of feeling about the stuff that gets on their plate. It doesn't mean they pay panic or freak out about it. It just means that they like to have just a controlled amount of stuff on the plate. They don't like to have too much on there. And on occasion, when there's something already on, like a little dinner roll plate, like something's already on there and someone says, would you like something else? They go, oh no, I'm, I already have something on my plate. Th- these are the people who their first reaction to something tends to be no. While, while those who are the big plate people, their first reaction tends to be yes. Now, my wife is the little plate person. Um, a, a good example is uh, earlier this week, I was just asking, hey, what do you want to do on Friday? Like, I don't work on Friday. I try not to answer any phone calls. I try not to do any emails, nothing. I'm just done. I'm off. And so I, I give her that time. And I said, what do you want to do with that time? And she said, oh, it's, it's already packed. And knowing her, I was like, really? Well, what are we doing? She says, well, I have my six-week doctor appointment. And I was like, yeah, at nine in the morning. It's like an hour. She's like, what else? Well, the doctor's appointment. Friday, doctor's appointment. And for her, in her mind, in her, her little plate thinking, Friday was already taken, up, taken care of. There was already something assigned to the Friday doctor's appointment. That was, on, that was on the list. And so some of you might be thinking, I get that. Yeah, there was something already on the list. I mean, that's what's going on. Like when somebody says, do you want to plan a trip? Well, when? For September. Oh, my birthday's in September. <laughs> it's like, all right, I'm sure you can fit more in that rest of that month. And I, I feel like the two different types of people look at their their, their, their life differently in the, comes to, when it comes to activity and what they do. The big plate people tend to be those who deal with busyness. More likely are the ones who struggle with busyness because they say yes to everything. Busyness takes over their life. And, and in fact, the enemy knows that he cannot stand toe-to-toe with Jesus. He cannot stand there and press Jesus out of your life. He can't remove Jesus from your life, so his strategy is to pile more into your life so that Jesus just becomes piled up with all the rest of the stuff. I know that many of you know what I'm talking about because you've had the busy lifestyle. You've been doing all kinds of crazy things. You add more and more to it and you just don't even know how you're going to get everything done. How am I going to accomplish all I have to do because there's just so much on my plate. You'll still say yes to new things, but it's just, it's constantly a struggle. There's so much to accomplish. I find that in our culture, we tend to wear our busyness as a badge of honor. It makes us feel important, doesn't it? Well, I have so much to do. I'm such a busy, important person. Couldn't possibly make time for other things. I have so much to do. It's so easy to fall into that trap of piling more and more on the plate. You know what else I found out about busyness is that there are so many people who uh, kind of think of busyness as a competitive sport. So you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. Try this this next week. For those of you who might have busyness in your life, if you ever struggle or deal with that, get around a bunch of other people, whoever your circle is, and just tell them, hey, I've got a really busy life right now. And just list a few things as to why. I guarantee you, somebody in that circle is going to go, oh, really? So you have three kids, and you have to take them to soccer practice in Rockford every night. Well, I have seven kids, and I have to take them to soccer practice every night, too, in Ohio. You know, that person who feels like they've got to one-up you, like, oh, oh, that's bad? Well, how about, well, yeah, well, I knew a guy who, and everybody wants to add to the struggle and say, like, well, I have more. It's almost like we wear them around on our chest, that badge of honor. Well, I'm busy, and I can handle the busy lifestyle. And it's silly, but we do it. And what happens is that Christ gets crowded right out of our lives. See, the big plate people, those people add more and more and more on. Ironically, they'll say yes to everybody else who shows up and has to throw something else on that plate, but they don't spend time with Jesus. That's their struggle. 
I mean, how, how many of us? I'll tell you right now, when I ask that question to people, hey, you know, what's the number one reason that you, you don't spend time in the Word? And, and, and just as being a pastor and hearing from people, the number one reason that I've heard people don't spend time in the Word is they're busy. It's rare that they go, well, I, I sit there and look at the Bible for an hour every morning, I just don't feel like opening it. It's rare that I, that I encounter something like that. It's always, I just don't have time. How am I going to do it? I wake up early, and as soon as I get up early, other things pop into my day, and I have to get up running. And I push Bible to the end of the night, and I get to the end of the night, and I can't, can't fit it in. Busyness becomes an extraordinary distraction. You struggle with that? Do you need to repent of the busyness in your life? You've allowed to crowd out Christ? Small plate people deal with the multitude of tasks in a different way. They, they don't try to just add more on. They try to control the chaos. Okay? They try to find a way to fit all of it in. And okay, listen, I can't meet with you today. But, you know, if you go three months out on this particular day, we'll put this little slot and we'll, we'll fit it. And they kind of get this whole schedule planned out. And there usually is a routine to it. This kind of rote, constant, one day to the next to the next. And they have this whole thing planned out just right. And you want to know that the main trouble with the routine lifestyle like that, because it can be helpful, just like the busyness lifestyle can be helpful when you can add more stuff. The struggle that I tend to see with this one is that it becomes rote. It becomes habitual. It becomes involuntary. These are the people that, that, that get up every morning at the same time so they can spend time in the Word, and they spend 20 minutes in the Word, and they spend five minutes praying, and they, do, and they have this whole little thing down, and they may even say some of the same prayer every time that they'll get up. And they may just land it right there, and the trouble is it becomes so involuntary that it becomes passive. It's like breathing. They don't even think about it. They just do it. But God calls us to an active lifestyle with him. Some of you might be thinking, well, I know God says to be still. Yes, but that's something that we actively participate in with God. See, we don't just sit back and be like, all right, God, I'm just going to do whatever. You just kind of be still to me, you know? You, you actively with, withdraw from other things. You actively pause and stop yourself from when you want to run forward. See, God calls us to an active relationship with him. He wants us to pursue whatever it is that he's got for us. That's an active relationship. Those who have that routine struggle with, oftentimes, it's just becoming that habit. Now, there's nothing sinful or wrong about the busy lifestyle. I don't, I don't think that that's the case. There's nothing sinful or wrong about the routine lifestyle at all. But I do think that they can become a distraction when they shift your focus off of the thing that God wants you to be looking at, Him, full devotion to Him, and it shifts it to your schedule, whether controlling it or adding anything to it. The third one that I said was ambition. Ambition isn't a bad thing. It's not a sin in and of itself. Ambition is actually a really good thing. God has used it in so many lives to be able to do great works for Him all around the world in all different times to see many one to Christ. Ambition can be a wonderful tool but it can also hurt you. It can also hurt you quite a bit. And here's why. Let me give you this, this example. The year is 1964. Two football teams face off against one another. The San Francisco 49ers and the Minnesota Vikings. In this game, at some particular point, the, the Vikings uh, are in defense and the, the 49ers on offense. And the, off, the offense... The quarterback drops back to throw a pass 10 yards deep. The pass is, is caught by the receiver who's almost immediately caught up by all the defenders around him and the ball gets stripped out and it bounces on the ground. It is a fumble. Well, there's one defensive end standing near who was right in all that mess of everything. His name was Jim Marshall. 
Jim Marshall saw the opportunity, the bouncing ball, and he grabbed it and he pushed through. He bounced through that, the crowd there. He almost knocked over a referee and he took off with all the wind, all the gusto that he could possibly muster. And the crowd went crazy. People began cheering and screaming and, and chanting. And you can imagine the moment where you're sprinting, you can see the end zone right there and you're running, looking back to make sure that you're not going to fall over your own feet or someone's right there on top of you. And he's making it. And just as he gets to the end zone, he crosses over the line. He throws the ball to the stands, raises his fist to pump in the air. The only problem was he ran the wrong direction. He scored a touchdown for the other team. It's called a safety. Instead of scoring points for his team, he scored points for the other team. And here's the point. Those who have drive, those who have ambition, those who are goal setters, who are able to run after something with all their might, they oftentimes run into the issue of running the wrong direction. Jim Marshall ran the wrong direction and he ended up scoring points for the other team and not for his own. This is a huge deal when Christians do this same thing. When they grab hold of one thing in life, they're going to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this as hard as I can. I'm going to go with all of my guts and all of my strength. And they don't realize that's not where God wants you to run. You're going the wrong way. And it happens. And it's a shame when somebody has gathered, mustered all their strength, all of their, all of their everything inside and the skills that God has even given and blessed them with and they go out to participate in God's work and instead of actually achieving God's work, they end up going the other way. Some people see this in their lives. They know it. They watch. They made a, they made a business decision based on money, not on what God wanted. Make a relationship decision based on what they wanted, not what God wanted. And what ends up happening is that after you're in it for a while, you look back and you go, man, I, I made the wrong call on this thing, but it's too late now. I'm in this. It's too late. I'm all the way down the road on this. I can't go back. I can't change it. When you get down that road and you get there, it's, you have the, the, the Jonah moment. You know, Jonah, the prophet from the Old Testament who was told by God to go to Nineveh, and he goes, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I want to go to Tarshish. And he goes to get in a boat to go the other way. He ended up in the belly of a whale. You ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like maybe you're in the belly of a whale? The reason might be because you've gone the wrong way. Oftentimes when we find out that we're going the wrong way, the way we decide we're going to fix that wrong direction is just praying that God would bless it. God, I made this decision, this business decision with this guy. I know this is the wrong call, and I'm going to do it anyway. And so, Lord, please just bless it. Just, if, if you just make this thing work, then I will contribute money to you. I'll figure it out. I'll go back to you. And God said, I'm not going to bless something that began with your sin. I'm not going to be able to jump into this. You see, sometimes our activity, our desire to go, even our ambition, can be the distraction. Busyness, routine, ambition, not sins. But they can distract us if you're not not careful. Now those are the things that we tend to struggle with in an individual sense. But what about the church? What about the body of believers? I'm going to go off script for a second and just tell you all that I've been struggling with this one all week and how I was going to share this with you all because I think that the church is in a position right now, big picture, big C church, in America especially, is struggling with something as they look at how they corporately participate in activity. And I want to illustrate that point using a book that I referenced the first weekend uh, we started this series. It was C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. If you may, may remember, I explained that this is written in 1942, and it's the time frame that it's covering is when, uh, when the English committed to war 
against the Axis in 1942, in, back, in, back in the, the World War II time frame. And when they committed to that and entered into it, uh, there were a lot of different types of thoughts that were flowing through the British at that moment. Lots of different warring opinions about it. And uh, what was really interesting is that C.S. Lewis uses this example of one demon giving instruction to a subordinate demon on how to lead astray a human. And he records it in a series of letters and puts it in this book for us to read. And at this one particular point, the high-ranking official who's giving the instruction to the lowly nephew of his of how to lead a Christian man in this time astray, he says, listen, I know the war effort is going on out there and there are two competing philosophies. There's patriotism and then there's pacifism. Let me tell you what you should do. And this is what he says. I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient, that's the human, an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes except extreme devotion to God are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction. It is our business to inflame them. When I look around in our culture today, I see a, a culture that is ready and raring to go to put all of their energy and efforts into some big cause, into some big purpose, and we see it every time we look out. And we feel like, well, as long as there's some cause that we're going after and we're defeating some kind of evil and we're, we're using some kind of good to defeat that evil, then we must be doing something right. We must be focusing on exactly the right thing. And he continues on. Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of patriotism or pacifism. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and chastity, he is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cage full down here. Isn't that crazy? What the enemy wants from us is to pursue any type of cause that is contrary or not the cause that God has called us to. God has made his cause to us so legitimate, so real. In Matthew chapter 28, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gathered his disciples around him and he gave them a great commission. He said, for the rest of your days, as the corporate body of believers, you're going to be going to do one thing. And this is the mission that you are forever going to be participating in. That mission is going to go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you till the very end of the age. See, Jesus gives a mission to the church. He says, don't get caught up in anything else. Your mission is saving souls. Your mission is making disciples, of teaching people what I have commanded you to teach them. That's what we're supposed to go do. And I'll tell you now, this is the place that I struggle the most with because I have such great concern for the church. I see so many people in the church, so many Christians who have given up the great commission for something far less. And I'll tell you, I think it grieves the heart of God when he sees his people rally around something that is not the solution to solve things that are not the problem. 
You can look in the world and see all of these things. You can see all these causes that people aim after. Uh, you, you pick whatever it is. We have all kinds of people who will gather and rally together and do huge, uh, huge uh, just gatherings and, and try to raise funds and money and support and, and, and commitments towards the, the effects of global warming or global climate change or all these things. You see, people will be willing to give their whole life and all their effort to try to save weather. They will give their lives for weather. This is ridiculous to me because you look back at Genesis chapter 8, you see that as Jesus, or as, as God is, is letting Noah get through the flood, and after he finishes the flood, God looks down on Noah and he goes, listen, I'm going to make a promise to you. Forevermore, there is going to be seed time and harvest until the earth endures. There is going to be uh, summertime and winter. There's going to be cold and heat. There's going to be night and day. And it's a promise from God. You cannot mess with the weather. It's mine. I got it. I got it taken care of. You guys don't worry about the weather. God has promised us we don't have to worry about it. I, I don't buy into the whole global warming thing, to be really honest with you. Both, both scientifically and biblically, I think it's an absolute farce. And tons of money are going to people to make them rich so they can drive their giant Escalades all over the place, re, uh, you know, mess with the, the oxygen in the air that they're telling people to save. I do not believe it for a second. And nothing frustrates me more than watching Christians go after that stuff with the ferocity that they should reserve only for the gospel being spread to the ends of the world. And it kills me to see it. And I know that my heart goes out to it as well because I see the causes and think, well, maybe it really is important. Maybe it really is. Just today, I, I, I saw and I, I've seen this every Saturday for the past couple weeks. I've, I've seen a group of people hanging outside a puppy shop uh, near where I live. And they're there with signs picketing, don't buy puppies from here. Do not buy puppies from this place. They get their puppies from a bad place and we don't want to do that. And they're holding these signs and they're marching around. And as they're marching, trying to save the souls of puppies across the street, there's tarot card readings, a psychic workshop, people conjuring demons to give them approval for knowing the future. And they're going to literally stand there and rally so you don't buy these puppies and not care that demons are being worshipped across the street. I'll tell you right now, 15,000 children, souls that will last forever somewhere in eternity, 15,000 will die today. I don't care about the puppy. 15,000 souls will be lost. How about the 56 million children that we have murdered through abortion in our country in the last 40 years? 56 million. And we care about the turtle on a distant seashore that we will never see? Read articles about people who climb up into trees to save the trees so no one can knock it down. Trees? It's a crop. I'll plant you another one. Jesus says that when he returns in Revelation, he's going to come and destroy a third of the trees are going to be gone. Every blade of grass, all the water, it's going to be worse than any oil spill, a third of the water is going to be destroyed. Not just the sea, where a third of the creatures will be destroyed, but in addition to that, even the, even the, the clean water, the fresh water will be destroyed. It'll be bitter. No one will be able to have it. God is going to literally upend the universe. It's going to come crashing down and we're trying to save it. We're trying to hold it up. And we should expect this from the world. We should see it coming from them and say, hey, I would expect that the world would get this way, but we cannot. As Christians, we have a cause already. God has given it to us. Perhaps the worst, perhaps the most heinous and frustrating is when we look to a false Messiah. I'm talking about politics. We, we, we purport that one person will finally save the world. You know, you're right. He will. His name is Jesus. He already came. He will come again. And you will not misunderstand that it is him when he shows up. Guys, there's something that pervades the church right now. It's called conservatism, okay? This is a very big deal with American Christian church. Conservatism is basically this line that runs kind of parallel in some cases to what the gospel says, what the Bible says about virtue, about moral living, about, about good and right, right living. And so a lot of Christians will fall into this idea of being conservative. Hey, we're just going to go with this. We're going we're to only vote for those people. We're going to give tons of money to this one thing. We're going to press on it with all of our lives and all of our hope because look, it's just like the Bible. No, it's not. 
It's not the gospel. And I'll tell you right now that when we continue to commit to the things that aren't the very thing that God has called his church to do forever, we make Christians look out to be fools. We make our mission look little and wimpy and tiny. Listen, I'll tell you what, we can, we can look after politicians. We're going to have to vote. We're going to have to be part of this world. We're going to have to live under governments. It's not wrong to vote or be part of those things, but so many people have allowed that to be a distraction that has stolen their focus. And as a church, we cannot be part of that. We cannot say change social reform for the gospel. As a church, I refuse to do this. And I've been out to war. And I've watched us at war. And I've watched seen the blood of many people and looked at these places and thought to myself, the only way to win this is to kill all the bad guys. That's the only way to win. Kill every bad guy. And I realize killing bad guys makes more bad guys. The only way this is going to ever turn around, Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to fix it just like he promised. And when he returns, time up. He's going to bring home those who have been saved. Are we going to participate in that work? Forgive me for my rant. But I love you. I love the church. And I... I feel like we need to beg forgiveness from our God. It's not about keeping people from getting married. It's not about fighting for one politician over the next. It's about exalting our risen Savior. For the rest of our lives, we cannot be waylaid by it. We must watch. We must be mindful, and as a church, never allow anything to take the place of Christ. Amen. Let me just close with prayer, asking God to forgive us, to point us towards his mission keep us on task because there's much, much, much to be done in the perhaps very short days we have ahead. Let's pray. God, forgive us. We've traded your gospel truth for something that is not. Lord, we have claimed that something can solve the problem, but the problem is sin and the only solution is Jesus. And we pray that we can come back to that. We pray that as a church that we wouldn't just rally around ideas, ideology, Lord. That we would rally around a person, a man, Jesus Christ, who is God. That the whole world would see that as these things go by, that we show great compassion for the lost. Great compassion for the hurting. That we do enter into the world. We do care about the world. But that, God, we would show our love through you. It would be an overflow of our mission going to accomplish for you, Lord. Help us. Keep us on track, on target. Eliminate the distractions, Lord, and keep us focused on you and you alone. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.